Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife, where we're introducing a new series called our Cardiac Surgery Crash Course. The cardiac OR can be a daunting place for any medical student or resident who finds themselves on a cardiac surgery rotation. But have no fear, this cardiac surgery crash course is a short series focused on high-yield topics to help introduce students and residents to cardiac surgery prior to or during a cardiac surgery rotation. In this series, we'll cover several of the most frequently performed operations, post-operative management, common consults, and other topics to help you ace your cardiac rotation. My name is Jessica Millar. And I'm Nick Tiemann, a cardiac surgeon at the University of Virginia. And we will be your hosts for today's episode. We hope you find our series useful, and if you have any suggestions or requests, please feel free to reach out to us by email, which you can find in the show notes for this episode. All right, so for this first session, our topic is going to be an introduction to the cardiac operating room. We're going to discuss the personnel you'll see in the operating room, the anesthesia considerations, as well as the usual flow of these operations. Great, let's get started. So what do you recommend a student or resident do when they first come into a cardiac operating room? So I think just like with any other operation, you want to make sure that you know who the various people are that are in the operating room. You have the usual circulating and scrub nurses, the surgeon, and the anesthesiologist, but also there will likely be a physician assistant. And if you're at an academic center, there'll be cardiac surgery residents and fellows, along with anesthesiology residents, and potentially cardiac anesthesia fellows. Plus, there'll be a perfusionist. So Jessica, what is the role of the perfusionist in these operations? The perfusionist sits at the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, and they're responsible for managing the blood flow and gas exchange while the patient is on bypass, administering cardioplegia to arrest the heart, and controlling the patient's temperature. That's right. Their role is vital, and we would not be able to perform the operations that we do without them. You should get to know them. They're usually more than happy to give you a crash course on how the bypass machine works. But we're going to get more into the intricacies of the bypass machine in our next episode. The other thing you should do upon entering the OR is make sure that all of the appropriate imaging studies for that patient are displayed. Depending on the operation, this could include a CT scan, coronary angiography, or an echocardiogram. So after the patient enters the operating room, there's a lot of setup that needs to take place prior to even making an incision. These are complicated operations, and the patients need quite a bit of monitoring. So Jessica, what have you seen in terms of how anesthesia approaches these patients? At minimum... All of these patients need an arterial line, usually a radial arterial line, and they'll all get a large central venous catheter. Now, something that's come up very recently and is maybe a little bit of a controversial topic is whether or not patients absolutely need a swan gains catheter. Nick, what do you think? So I would say that there's more and more data that pulmonary artery catheters or swan gains catheters are not necessary for most patients that are undergoing cardiac surgery. But this is very much institutional dependent. I would say that at UVA, we are more likely to use PA catheters than other institutions, but for patients with normal cardiac function undergoing straightforward operations, they're not necessary. And especially for our students out there, watching the anesthesiologist place the swan catheter can be a great learning opportunity. This is how I practice identifying all of those different waveforms for the RA, the RV, and the pulmonary artery, which tend to pop up a lot on tests. The other thing I've seen the anesthesiologists use is the transesophageal echocardiography probe. Nick, what's the purpose of that? So the intraoperative TE serves a couple of purposes. The first is to confirm and identify any valvular pathology before you even start the operation. This may impact the operation that you perform, 
although hopefully there aren't any major surprises at this stage. The other main purpose of the TE is to assess your valve repair or replacement, to make sure there isn't any residual air in the heart, and to help wean the patient from cardiopulmonary bypass. Again, TEEs are a great thing for students in the OR to watch at least once or twice while you're on your cardiac surgery rotation. Something else that comes up a lot is blood transfusions, and especially the use of autologous blood transfusions in cardiac surgery. Can you talk to us a little bit about why that's something unique to cardiac surgery and what it's used for? So our cardiac surgery patients have a lot of fluid shifts. They lose a lot of blood into the field. Most of that is scavenged and returned to the circuit, but they also get a lot of IV fluids. There's a lot of human dilution, and the rate of blood transfusion is quite high. So we're very careful about preserving blood. One of the things that I think is really interesting is the idea of autologous blood transfusion or acute normovolemic hemodilution, which is where we take some of the patient's blood prior to the operation, and then after they come off bypass, then we give them their whole blood back with clotting factors that, uh, to help reduce uh, the need for subsequent transfusion. It can also help correct a lot of your coagulopathies postoperatively, which is really amazing to watch in the operating room. So Jessica, what have you seen in terms of how we prep and drape the patients to get them ready for the operation? So prepping the patient, this can vary widely based on the operation, but most surgeons will prep the chest and both legs in case you need to do any type of vein harvest for bypass conduits during surgery. And that's right. And sometimes you uh, have other access points like femoral exposure or an axillary exposure. And so you're, the field that's draped is going to depend a little bit uh, on the operation that you're performing. So let's, let's get into the operation. Let's talk about the standard steps to an operation. Talk me through a sternotomy. Yeah. So sternotomy. It's really important to know if this is the patient's first cardiac operation or if it's a redo sternotomy. Redos typically are much more difficult thanks to all of the scar tissue that forms and can be a lot more dangerous. So don't be surprised if the attending or the fellow wants to open the chest in those cases. To do a sternotomy, we use a sternal saw to cut the sternum from sternal notch, usually all the way down to the xiphoid. And you'll notice that once we open the sternum after making our cut, there'll be a lot of blood from the cut edges of the sternum. So we'll use bone wax and cautery to help stop all of the significant bleeding from the edges of the cut bone. Once we've got good hemostasis, a sternal retractor is then placed to keep the chest open. So that's right. And in in a redo scenario, we don't often use a saw that goes kind of superior, inferior, or vice versa. We usually use an oscillating saw and kind of more go anterior, posterior. So we divide the anterior table of the sternum with the saw. And then we divide the posterior table of the sternum with uh, some heavy scissors. And that's just a safer way of getting in because the normal planes that allow you to saw the the sternum from top to bottom or bottom to top are kind of obliterated due to the scar tissue, like you said. So now we've got our sternum opened and now we need to open the pericardium. So talk talk me through that. Yeah, this is a really critical part of the case and can be very tricky because you're trying to cut open something that's constantly moving in front of you. You may notice that once a small hole is made into the pericardium, a suction tip or some other type of device is inserted into the pericardium, and that just helps serve as a barrier to protect the heart while the rest of the pericardium is divided. You definitely don't want to accidentally cut your heart. That's right. And, and we, uh, the UVA way is we use a finger for that because we don't want to be the ones that end up putting a sucker through the heart. But the, again, that'll be institutionally dependent. So now we've got our pericardium open. Now what? So the pericardium is pretty floppy, and so we don't want it to keep flopping into our surgical field. So we'll place what are called pericardial stay sutures. These are often silk sutures that will kind of hook through the pericardium. And every surgeon tends to do this a little differently. So for all the medical students out there, just just pay attention to how they do these the first time. Some attendings will either tie them to the drapes 
or they'll put snaps on the edges of them. I've seen them done both ways. So just pay attention. One way or another, though, if they want you, if they tie anything to the drapes and they want you to cut the knots, we always want to make sure for these we do short tails. And that's just to prevent any catching uh, during the surgery. Long tails just tend to get in the way during the operation. So that's right. So now we're ready to cannulate for cardiopulmonary bypass. Now, just keep in mind that there might have been other steps going on to prepare ourselves for the operation that we're going to be performed, like harvesting vein or the internal mammary artery. So in terms of uh, cannulating for bypass. These are cannulas that help drain the blood from the right side of the heart and return it through a cannula that's placed into the aorta. This helps divert blood away from the heart, aka our surgical field, and allows for a bloodless operation. Now, don't worry, we're going to get into way more detail about that in our next episode. So, Jessica, talk to us about cardioplegia cannulas and how that's different from bypass. So cardioplegia cannulas, these are a little bit different from what we use for bypass. So in your mind, it's important to kind of just separate bypass and cardioplegia. Most operations will be done with the heart arrested, aka giving cardioplegia, but not all of them. If we are going to give cardioplegia, though, for a case, this is usually delivered into the aortic root via catheter in the ascending aorta, and we call this antegrade cardioplegia, and that fluid then drains into the coronary arteries to then help arrest the heart. You can also put a cannula into the coronary sinus in the right atrium. This then fills the heart with cardioplegia solution in a retrograde fashion, and we call this retrograde cardioplegia. So another super important part of any cardiac surgery is the anticoagulation. So talk me through that. Yeah, anticoagulation. We couldn't do surgery with cardiopulmonary bypass without it. Heparin is usually the agent that's most commonly used, and we monitor this with something that's called ACT, or activated clotting time, to gauge the level of anticoagulation in the patient. Now, ACT is a really easy point of care test that can be performed directly in the operating room. And you want to keep in mind that a goal ACT for cardiac surgery is going to be something greater than 500 versus if you've ever been in a vascular surgery case before, their ACT goals are usually less at greater than 250. Right. So now we're on bypass and now we're ready to cross clamp the aorta. So along with initiation of cardiopulmonary bypass, the cross clamp is one of the key, two key time points in a cardiac operation. Now, when we place an aortic cross clamp, this excludes the heart from the rest of the circulation and allows the heart to be arrested and opened to perform the operation. Now, when cardioplegia is first administered, pay close attention to the EKG waveform on the monitors in the operating room. You will see a per- usually see a period of ventricular fibrillation prior to a flat line that indicates the lack of electrical activity in the heart. All right, all the setup, and now it's time for the operation. There's a wide variety of surgeries that cardiac surgeons will perform, such as cabbages, valves, aortic procedures, and they're all a little different. And sometimes patients can even have a combination of these done. We'll go into more depth on some of the key components of these different operations in future podcast episodes, but there are plenty of good resources to learn more about these surgeries, especially if that's what you're planning to see for the day. The Thoracic Surgery Residents Association has several books that are useful, including an operation dictations book. And Operative Techniques in Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery is a journal with operative descriptions and pictures. When in doubt, you can also find multiple YouTube videos that show the operation that you're going to see. That's right. There's truly a a wealth of information that's out there, uh, and we'll include some of that information in the show notes. Now, we've performed our operation. We're ready to come off bypass. Talk me through that, Jessica. So this can be a quick and easy process, or it can be very slow and delicate, depending on the operation performed and the intrinsic function of the patient's heart. The amount of blood that's being drained from the right side of the heart will be slowly reduced, aka more blood is allowed to fill the right side of the heart. 
meaning now the heart has to do more work. This is done in a stepwise fashion until the heart is once again responsible for pumping all of the blood. If cardioplegia was given, you'll also see the heart slowly begin to beat again as blood flows through the coronary arteries instead of our cardioplegia. And sometimes a small electrical shock is needed with internal defibrillator paddles. As the heart is starting to rewarm and beat again, make sure you're watching the ECG tracings on the monitors and you'll see it start to resume function. So now we've let the heart fill. We've checked uh, our TEE to make sure that our heart is functioning normally, that our valve repair or replacement looks good, and there's no other issues that come up that we need to address. So we're ready to come off bypass and reverse the anticoagulation. So how does that work? Yeah, so if heparin was given as the anticoagulation agent, then we achieve this with protamine. One thing, though, you want to be careful about is protamine can induce an anaphylactoid reaction, so it has to be given very slowly. We monitor the reversal of our anticoagulation with ACT, and if the ACT doesn't correct or doesn't go back to the patient's baseline, we can always give more protamine or other coagulation factors. That's great. And so let's talk about some other things that you may see in the operating room as we, as we are completing the operation. So sometimes we'll put on pacing wires onto the heart. Why, why do we do that? What's the deal with those? Most surgeons will leave ventricular or atrial pacing wires, and it's really just an insurance policy. A lot of patients can have post-op arrhythmias that are short-term or short-lived, and we can use these pacing wires to also help increase the patient's heart rate or cardiac index post-operatively if needed. If patients have persistent arrhythmias post-operatively, sometimes we'll replace these with more permanent pacemakers, but most patients will have these temporary pacing wires removed prior to leaving the hospital. That's right. And the other thing you'll see is some type of drainage system for the blood that's accumulating in the chest. So we use chest tubes uh, or drainage tubes for all patients after cardiac operations. Remember that there can be a lot of bleeding and inflammation postoperatively, and the mediastinum is, is a small space where cardiac tamponade can develop quickly. So everyone's going to have a little bit different approach to this. Uh, most surgeons will leave two chest tubes, kind of one behind the heart and one in front of the heart to help drain fluid and prevent tamponade. Plus any pleural space that was violated will also usually get a chest tube into there. This is a good way to monitor for postoperative bleeding and also make sure that there's no uh, pneumothorax or anything like that that develops. Now, there are different styles for this. At UVA, we use Blake drains, um, but other centers use large bore kind of trauma style chest tubes. And some tubes even come with uh, built-in technology that allow for active clearance of the lumen of those tubes. So we've got all our equipment in place. We're off bypass, the heart looks good, we assess for hemostasis, and we're happy. So how do we close the sternotomy? What, what's next? So next, we'll want to close our sternotomy, and this is usually done with sternal wires, although there are some surgeons that strongly advocate for the use of one of the many sternal plating systems that are currently on the market. For wires, you can use either sharp needles or blunt needles, and some surgeons will advocate for blunt needles because it theoretically avoids injuring the heart. Regardless, all sternal wires have the potential to damage the heart, lungs, blood vessels, and yourself, so be careful. Closing your sternotomy can also cause a lot of pressure on the lungs and the heart as the mediastinum is now getting tighter. So any closure of the sternum is a teamwork effort between both you and your anesthesiology team. You need to communicate when you're closing the chest, aka when you're tightening the wires, and having them monitor for changes in hemodynamics or vent settings. Some patients just can't tolerate their chest being closed post-surgery, and they may need to be left open, although that's usually an extreme circumstance. That's right. Usually the scenarios that we have to do that are if there's ongoing bleeding that requires kind of packing with, with sponges uh, and we don't think the patient is able to have their chest definitively closed yet, 
or if there's problems with RV dysfunction and the RV, you know, the RV is very sensitive to trying to close the sternum over it sometimes. So we've closed the chest. Hooray. So we're done, right, Jess? Uh, no, we're not ready to leave the OR just yet. Most surgeons will want to stay and monitor the chest tube output for about 15 to 30 minutes prior to leaving the OR, and this is a monitor for bleeding. It's just way better to find out something in the chest is bleeding while you're still in the OR than have to come back later. Once, though, we are happy with our chest tube output, we can then start to move our patient towards the ICU, and this includes moving them onto the stretcher in the operating room, which can be quite difficult. There's lines, foleys, chest tubes, pacing wires, ET tubes. Generally speaking, anesthesia should be the one calling the shots about when it's safe to move. But for our students out there, you can definitely help by making sure nothing gets forgotten. Most importantly, you should go with the patient to the ICU. Absolutely. You must go with your patient to the ICU. Now, remember, most cardiac surgery ICUs have a robust sign-out process where both the anesthesia and surgical team are present to discuss what occurred during the case and what you would expect postoperatively. Plus, this gives you a chance to talk with the intensivists, who again are a wealth of information, and you'll learn a great deal about the patient's physiology and the postoperative management. Make sure you check your chest tubes one last time. Make sure there hasn't been any large change in output, especially with all the rolling and moving around. But once you feel like your patient is stable and sign-out's complete, then you're ready to move on to your next case. Well, thanks, Nick, for all of your help in getting us introduced to the cardiac OR. We hope this episode was a helpful introduction to the cardiac OR and that all of the different steps in the operating room now make a little bit more sense. Be sure to look out for future episodes in our cardiac surgery crash course series. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.